Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. We're concluding our series on legacy, and I want to talk to you a little while this morning about uh, having a life, living a life that will live on after we're gone. It is possible to live such a life, to make such an impact in the lives of other people that our lives will live on even after we're gone. You see, the, the measure of a successful life is not in beauty, our brains, our brawn, our bucks. <laughs> it's in making an impact. Now, there's nothing wrong with being beautiful or handsome or wealthy. It's not fair, but there's nothing wrong with it. But the point is, none of that has to do really with living a life that will live on once that we're gone. Paul certainly understood it. When he wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, he said, our lives are being lived uh, as, a, as an actor on a stage. He said, our lives are lived as a spectacle. Uh, he said, before seen people and unseen angels. The, the word spectacle in the Greek is theatron. We get the word theater from that. Paul's imagery was one of those ancient amphitheaters where the actors would act out the play. And Paul said, you and I are like actors on a stage. There's an audience of people that are watching how we live our lives. And there's an audience of people that will learn from our lives. Sometimes we're good examples of good examples, and sometimes we're good examples of bad examples. <laughs> but we're all examples. We can learn from the mistakes that we've made. We can learn from the successes that we've had. And all of those things go together, really, to create our legacy. Those are the things that people will think about, and they will live on after we're gone. Now, as we said in the roll-in, there's nothing we can do about our past. So we can't go back and change it. You can't rewrite it. Revisionism doesn't work with what I'm talking about. You, you can't tell your story as you wished it could be or even should have been. You can't do anything about your past other than try to get past your past. And I can tell you, if you're going to make changes in your present that impact your future, you really do have to get past your past. I tell people all the time, once God has forgiven you, forgive yourself. There's nothing you can do about your past except learn from it. That's why the windshield is always larger than the rearview mirror. You glance in the rearview, but you focus on the, where you're going, right? And so in this idea of living, uh, leaving a life that will live on after we're gone, you, you have that, that, that element of getting past the past, making changes in the present that inevitably will change our future. Now, there's a lot of good examples I could have taken from Scripture that really illustrate this, but none better than Nehemiah, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. Nehemiah was a builder. He was a contractor. And can I tell you, God uses everyday, ordinary people. Sometimes things, people think, well, you have to be a minister in order to be you know, used of God. There are a lot of people in the Bible he used that weren't ministers, though they had ministries. Nehemiah was a builder. He was a contractor. He started out as the king's cupbearer, the most trusted man in the kingdom. He stood by Artaxerxes. And before Artaxerxes would taste his food, Nehemiah had to taste it first. And before he could drink his wine, Nehemiah had to sip it first. Um, you, you, you really had to love the king to do that job, by the way. 
And you really had to keep an eye on the news to make sure everybody in the kingdom loved the king to do that job, by the way. But he was the most trusted man, highly successful, very effective, but he hadn't yet discovered his true design and his true purpose. He hadn't really found what God wanted him to do. So as our story takes up this morning, uh, Nehemiah was a man who did amazing things. He rebuilt the ancient city of Jerusalem. Remember, the city was lying in waste, and the people of God had been carried off into Babylon. They were carried captives. And for all that period of time, there was a distance between God and his people. And so you see a revival. You see a renaissance. You see a return to God. And Nehemiah and Ezra would be a big part of that. Ezra would rebuild the temple, and Nehemiah would rebuild the city. And what's interesting about it, and I hope you take time sometime just to read the book of Nehemiah. It's an easy read, and it's really a fascinating read. But when you look back at Nehemiah, and I'll cherry pick some of the good parts for us this time, for this time this morning, but six different times, Nehemiah was concerned about how he would be remembered. He was concerned about what people would think about him after he was gone. Six times. In fact, look at it with me. Uh, Nehemiah 5.19, remember me, my God for good, according to all that I've done for this people. Nehemiah said, God, I know I made mistakes, but I want you to remember the good things I did. I want people to think about the impact I made on their lives as I was used to rebuild uh, this ancient city, these walls. Nehemiah 6, 14, my God, remember Tobiah and Sambalat according to their works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who, have, who made me afraid. He said, God, remember the opposition I faced and yet I remained faithful? God, do you remember the days when my work was just going uphill and I was facing all those headwinds, but I didn't quit? When I had those, op- when I had the betrayals and, and when I had the people who worked against me and fought against me and slandered me, I stayed faithful to you. He said, remember that. Nehemiah 13, verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. God, I, I, want, I, I want to be remembered for the things that you used me to do. Nehemiah. 13, verse um, 22, remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Again, Nehemiah 13, 31, remember me, O my God, for good. You get the theme? (laughs) Remember me, remember me. God, please remember me. Don't forget the good things. I want people to remember the, the work that I did. I want my life to live on after it's gone. And by the way, 2,400 years later, we still remember Nehemiah. I'm talking to you about Nehemiah, and God obviously honored the man's life. We still speak of him today. And I really believe that living a life that lives on after we're gone is tied to four things that are significant. Four things. Number one is tied to your purpose. Nehemiah understood God's purpose for his life. Nehemiah 2, verse 4, the king said to me, what do you request? I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. He asked permission for the king uh, to leave a great job for an even better job. Nehemiah had a good job, and he was doing good things, but God had something better for him. 
When you begin to understand God's unique purpose for your life, you begin to be discerning and you begin to not settle for what's good for you because you want to achieve what's best for you. If you're single, you don't want to settle for who is good for you. You want to settle for who is best for you. Sometimes good is the enemy of best. Sometimes we settle for good when best is available. He had a good job, but God had a better job. And Nehemiah aligned himself with God's purpose for his life. Now understand this, you will never know God's unique purpose for your life unless you are connected to him in a relationship. The Bible says concerning how we're made, we're uh, beautifully and wonderfully made. And I believe from the moment of conception, we are beautifully, wonderfully made. God is forming those babies in the womb. He has a purpose for their life. And God has a plan for every life. And once you enter this world and you begin to live your life, you will never fully come to fulfillment or fruition with purpose until you are connected with your creator. I talk about this from time to time. We, when I grew up, we had a drawer in the kitchen called the junk drawer. You have a junk drawer at your house, the catch-all drawer. It's got bobby pins, it's got thumbtacks, it's got you know, paper clips, a screwdriver, it's got a hammer, it's got all kinds of things. It's the junk drawer. We just call it the junk drawer. I've got one at my house right now. Cindy and I have the junk drawer. And, and in the junk drawer are things you know what are and what they do, but in the junk drawer are things you don't have a clue what they are, but they look important so you don't throw them away. You have any, I guarantee if you went to my house right now, I could pull that out and I'd tell you, I, I, doesn't that look important? It goes to something. I just don't know what. And when you decide you're gonna clear out the junk drawer, one of the things you struggle with is throwing away the thing that looks important, but you don't know where it fits and you're afraid if you throw it away, back of the house will fall in, you know that that gives some special something that goes right into the gadget that makes the gizmo work. So you hang on to it. And I'm just saying, when you and I are a part, we're beautifully, wonderfully made, the Bible says. God has uniquely designed you and no one has your DNA. Nobody can do what you do. And when you are, have that kind of design going into your life, but you are distant from your creator and you don't really know how you fit, you kind of end up in the junk drawer. There's value. You're important and significant, but people don't know where you fit or how you fit. And so I'm saying once you've connected with the creator and you have a relationship with your designer, then now I know him and I can know what he's designed me to do. That was Nehemiah. Man, you can't get out of chapter one and chapter two without understanding Nehemiah knew Jesus. Nehemiah knew his God. And Nehemiah, in knowing his heavenly father, he discovered his purpose. Now, I think there's a way to find purpose. Sometimes you just do what you know to do, and then God will begin to reveal the things you do not, you do not yet know to do. Um, let me color that a little bit. Uh, sometimes when I say, well, I don't know the direction of my career or the direction of my life, I know God hadn't revealed that to me. I know he has something, but I don't know what it looks like yet. Then, then the best advice I could give you is do what you know to do day to day. What are you supposed to do this morning? Okay, I gotta get up, I just gotta take care of this business, this is what I need to do. I'm gonna take care of these basic routines. This is what I know to do. These are the good things that I know to do. And as you do the good things that you know to do, God will begin to open up things you did not know how to do. 
He'll begin to reveal things to you. Um, what you have to be careful about, especially in ministry or you're doing good work with your life, is trying to respond to every need you encounter. The need was great. The walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The temple was no more in the city of Jerusalem, the most sacred place for those Jewish people in all the world. And all that was gone. They're in Babylon. All that was gone. And so if Nehemiah was looking at how, I could, how could I make a difference and have a life that lives on after I'm gone, there are a lot of needs he could, have begin, to, he could begin to respond to. And there's some people that don't understand that God will use a need to make you aware of a calling, but the need is not necessarily the calling. Here's why. You can't respond to every need. You're a limited resource. You have limited resources. If you don't discern between what is needed and what I'm called to do, if you can't make that distinction, you'll jump to every need that pops up. Well, they need me over here and I need to work over here. Okay, I'm over here. Oh gosh, there's a need over there. I'm gonna go over here now. I'm working over, oh my God, there's a need over there. I gotta go over there. And before you know it, you're chasing all these needs. You're the jack of all trades and the master of none. You just go like a four alarm fire. And at the end of the day, you're gonna be so frustrated because you feel like you've responded to needs. You started things, you weren't, you didn't have time to finish them because you haven't separated the need from the call. Now again, God will use the need to make you aware of the call. You get up and do the basic things and you respond to the needs and then eventually God gives you the calling. But when you have the calling or the purpose, when you understand his purpose, then you can say as Paul, this one thing I do, this thing, it's got my focus. And for all these years, guys, Nehemiah was responding to the needs, the needs of Artaxerxes in Shushan the palace, I'm responding to all the needs, I'm trying to take care of this, and one day, God made him aware of a call. This is what you're supposed to do. This is your calling, this is your purpose, Nehemiah. You're gonna go back and you're gonna rebuild this ancient city, and it absolutely changed his life. So I see Nehemiah and I see the first thing that stands out that created a life that lives on after his gone was he was a man that understood his purpose. And let me circle back and tell you, you've got a purpose. You've got a design. There's something God placed you on this earth to do that no one in the world can do it exactly like you. And by the way, I believe that so strongly that I believe you are immortal until God is finished with you. You say, well, man, I made mistakes. Well, who hadn't? Someone as well said, if you never made a mistake, you probably didn't make anything. The point is, you, you gotta get past the past and past the mistakes and stay focused on where you're supposed to go and doing what you're supposed to be doing and God has a purpose and a plan and he's not finished with you. You say, well, Bill, how do I know when God's finished with me? You'll know, you'll know. And the person closest to you at the, that moment will know too. And then soon everybody that knows you will know. They're not here anymore. What happened? Work was done. Remember Ecclesiastes 3, to everything there is a season, there is a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, time to die. Life is seasonal. We go on the stage of our life and we're in different seasons. Some are happy, some are sad, some are good and some are bad. There's, we're on the stage, there's seasons of life. But our time is connected to purpose. To every time there's a purpose under heaven, he said. So as long as you have purpose, God gives you time. 
And when your purpose ends, so does your time. So the fact you're here this morning and listening to me, regardless of your age, God's not finished with you. And by the way, sometimes he can do the greatest work in the later seasons of your life. <laughs> I told you a few weeks ago, that friend of mine, and he was having one of these moments where he was reflecting on his life. And he was thinking about how old he was. And he said, man, I just think about it. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm at halftime. I'm, I'm at halftime. That's, that's where I am right now in my life, man. I just realized I'm in my 50s. I'm not I said, well, what, what? Dude, you're not, you're not at halftime. You're well into the third quarter. <laughs> you're in your 50s? How many people you know that are 100? I mean, back that bus up. I mean, 35, 40, now you're getting close to halftime. You get 50, I'm, look, I, I'm well aware I'm in the fourth quarter, baby. And I understand, I got an eye on the game clock. I'm watching that thing. I know where I am. That's, well, what's my point? My point is the more limited you are with your time, the more purposeful you should be. You shouldn't waste time with people who waste your time because you don't have enough of it. So you have to say, I have to be very intentional with the time God has given me. The Bible puts it this way, redeeming the time because the days are mean buying back that time, buying up, utilizing that time. Time is a precious commodity. You probably have more resources than you have time. And so he understood, man, I got to fulfill purpose. I'm on a man on a mission here. And so that was the first significant thing he came to terms with was his purpose. Here's the second thing he did. He developed some partnerships, some partnerships. He had some friends. He built a team. Look at it in Nehemiah 2, verse 12. I rose in the night, I and note a few men. And I didn't tell any of them at that point what God had put in my heart to do. And then down in verse 10, he said, but finally I felt the time was right. So I told them of the good hand of God upon me and of the king's words that had spoken to me. And here's what they said. We're with you, man. Let's rise up and build. So they set their hands to this good work. And when you get to the next chapter, his small team that he brought around him was hundreds of workers that were sold on that vision. And they were helping him fulfill that purpose. Let me, let me pick this apart for a moment. He starts out understanding his purpose, and once he knew his purpose, he built around him a handful of people that he could trust. Can I say one of the principles that will help you be effective in life is be careful who you bring around you. Be careful who is in your closest circle. You need safe people in your life. You need people who are good and faithful to you on your good days. They rejoice with those who rejoice. And you need people who are good and faithful to you on your worst days. They'll weep with those who weep. I hear people from time to time say, man, I look at my, my uh, Facebook page and I got a thousand friends. I said, no, you don't. No, you don't. I don't want to burst your little bubble there, sport, but you don't have a thousand friends. You don't have a thousand people that would go to war with you. You don't have a thousand people that would run into your life when everyone else runs out of your life. Listen, somebody as well said, if you've got a handful of real good friends, you're, you're a wealthy person. And I, I talked about getting older. And I can tell you, man, as you get older, you, you don't have time to develop those kinds of friendships. I mean, you, you, so, so what you do is you hold on to those old friends, as the old sign goes, the song goes, and those old friends are the gold friends, man. Those are the ones you keep around you. And you need some safe people. You need some people in your life who will let you have a bad day. 
who will allow you to say things that you may not even mean at the time you said them, but you had to say them. You have to, let, you have, to have some friends in your life who love you enough that you can share your struggles with them, your heartaches with them, and they're not going to go post it up somewhere. You're not going to meet it somewhere coming back at you. And you're not going to have somebody go, I, I just shared this, this confidential piece you gave me with 40 of our closest friends as a prayer request. No, you don't need that. I'm just saying you've got to work to develop those relationships in your life. And you need to be careful and discerning of who are your safe people. Who, who, somebody said, who's your circle? Who are those people you've got that you can trust and that trust you? And the way you develop it is you have to be that. Uh, the Bible says if you would have friends, Proverbs 17, if you would have those kinds of friends, you have to show yourself friendly. The best way to have that kind of friend is be that friend. You make that investment. And, and, and there's a locked-in law of likeness that says whatever you want, you give away. Try it when we leave in a few minutes. Smile at somebody. They'll smile back. I don't mean one of those cheesy grins like you've been up to something. But I mean a genuine smile. And they'll smile back. You be kind to someone and kindness tends to find you again. Your generous generosity tends to find you. You attract what you're like. And I'm saying if you're loyal and you invest and you have that kind of input into someone's life, that's going to come back to you if they have any character and you're going to have those kinds of friends. Don't miss it. I and a few friends went in spite of, and then in verse 18, I shared with those few friends what God had put in my heart to do. And from there, man, they said, we're with you, man. We're on board. We are your cheering section. Let's do it. And so you see one of the things that impacted the life that lives on after he's gone was he found his purpose and he found some partnerships. He found some people that could get on board with him that believed in where he was going and wanted to help him get there. But here's the third thing he ran into, and that was persecution. Persecution. Look at it, Nehemiah 4. But it so happened when Samballot heard we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious. You know, not, everybody, not everybody's going to be happy when you're happy. You ever buy a car or something, you're so happy you tell somebody, well, I'm glad somebody's having a, able to get a new car. Don't you hate that? Wah, wah, wah. You get a new house, well, I'm glad somebody's got a new house. You're like, there are more new houses. I didn't get the last one. There, there, there's more out there. We have realtors in our church. They'll help you find a house. You want a house? Go get you one. You want a car? I didn't buy the last one. You can get you a Just go get you one. But they just, you know what I mean? They, they kind of rain on your parade. There are people that are like that, a lot that are like that. Sam Ballot, he hears what God is doing, the purpose in the team. And he said he, he was furious and indignant and he mocked the Jews. What did that have to do with anything? Why are you mad about what God's called me to do? Stay in your lane. Do what you come in. God's called you to do. And he spoke before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, what are these feeble Jews getting? No one knows how he's talking them down. Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, these stones that are burned? In one place, he said, even if they get the thing up, if a fox runs across it, the whole thing's going to fall down. <laughs> what does that represent? That represents the opposition they faced. And it's interesting that right after those guys said, let's rise up and build, we can do this, the very next thing that happened was the devil said, oh, you're going to rise up and build? I'm going to rise up and blast. 
And can I tell you, any time a person becomes the center of Holy Spirit activity, that same person becomes the center of unholy spirit activity. I'm just warning you. I, I, I want you to be prepared. I had people tell me, Bill, I didn't face this kind of opposition until I decided to really get my life on track and get my family back in church. And now, I, they say, all hell seems to be coming against me. Well, uh, that's not accidental. You weren't a threat to the enemy before. You weren't a threat to the enemy when you didn't care about other people getting help or knowing Jesus, and you didn't care if God's church was growing and effective in reaching other people. But the minute you care, you open your Bible, you start praying, you share your faith, you love your family, look out, tap the brake. Now you're a threat, and you're on the enemy's radar. But the good news about the bad news is if you're not running into the devil, it might be a sign you're running with him. So sometimes it's a good, sometimes it's a good sign. Someone said, Paul Harvey said, you know you're on the road to success when it's uphill all the way. Paul said, the, there's a great and effectual door open unto me, but then he said, there are many adversaries. With op opportunity comes opposition. In any area of your life, when you face opportunity, there will be the, the door of opportunity swings on the hinges of opposition. They faced it. Man, here this op opposition starts coming. But, but let me tell you, what you see in Nehemiah is the devil's tactic. Here's what Paul said about the devil, 2 Corinthians 2.11. He said, so the enemy doesn't take advantage of us. Listen, we're not ignorant of his devices. Here's what I know about the devil. The devil will do what the devil has done. And if you want to know what kind of assault will I face in my life, look back at Nehemiah and see what he did. I've identified several for you. Let me, I'm going to hit them real quick. So if you take notes, you might want to write these down. Or you might just go facing that. Face that. I might face that. Number one, uh, chapter four, verse one through three, derision. He ridicules them. Did you know they say in a debate, if you're losing on the merits of your argument, if you can ridicule your opponent, you can shift the tone of the debate. That's why you see name calling in different types of debate over issues. They move off of the issue because they can't win on the merits of their argument and they just attack the person that they're arguing with or they're debating with. That's a tactic the devil uses all the time. To get you off course, he ridicules you. These feeble Jews, these weak people. What can, you know, who do you think you are? I know about your past. I know, and no, now all of a sudden, oh, you're goody-goody. You're trying to do all these good. Derision. It's a tactic. It's how the devil works. Secondly, discouragement. Chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says they're halfway through the project and they're discouraged. Let me ask you, have you ever cleaned out the garage or the attic and you got halfway through the job and thought, what was I thinking? You got all this clutter in your garage or in your attic and you're, now you got, you got your piles, right? This is my keep pile. This is my giveaway pile. This is my sell in the garage sale pile. This is the trash pile. And all the piles end up in one pile and you just move one pile to another pile place. And you get halfway through, you pulled it all out. And now that's sitting in your driveway, you're going, oh, I've outpunted my coverage. What was I thinking? And you're just so exhausted. Well, that's where they were. The devil used this tactic of, of discouragement. Of, uh, thirdly, was danger. He threatened them. Chapter 4, verse 11. Number 5, uh, 4 rather, discord. Chapter 5, verse 1. He, they turned on each other. They started battling one another. 
Number six, depletion. They were running out of money and energy. Chapter five, verses three and four. Chapter six, verses one through four, distraction. He got them chasing the little shiny thing. When they were uh, laying track across West Texas, some of the, the workers laying the tracks, the railroad tracks across West Texas were getting bit by rattlesnakes. And so it wasn't long until they appointed a group of people to go out ahead of the workers and watch for, watch for these rattlesnakes. And then it wasn't long until more people were preoccupied looking for snakes than were laying track. That's how the devil works. He gets you looking for the little shiny things and gets you off the main thing. And so they were distracted. Chapter uh, six, verses five through eight, defamation, defamation. He slanders them. He attacks their good name and attacks their character. Chapter six, verses nine through 11, dismay, just overwhelmed. Like the French philosopher who said, I've got so much to do, I'm going back to bed. <laughs> and then the last tactic in chapter six, verses 12 through 14, deception, just deceived them, outright lied to them. Guys, these are tactics of the enemy. And I'm just saying, when you set out to do the right thing and accomplish something and you get your team and you have your friends around you and you have healthy relationships, expect Persecution, expect it. I can tell you that most people in this room that are most acquainted with, uh, with persecution are Cowboys fans, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Next year's champions, man, we're gonna do it. It's our year. The only thing that would come close are some of my, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, some of my OU fans this year. I'm, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> I know, I know, my mom's from Oklahoma and she would not have been happy with that game yesterday. I get it. But you know a little something about persecution? And I just, I'm, that's, that's not in line with what I'm talking about, but it just fit right there and I thought it put something to say, you know. But you're gonna face that. But here's the last thought and we'll go home. This last point is what helps you absolutely Live a life that lives on after you're gone. You ready for it? Perseverance. His perseverance. He didn't quit. Look, nothing, no one, nothing, no one can stop you or defeat you unless you quit. I mean, man, when you read this in Nehemiah 4, verses 6 and verse 17, said, we built the wall. The entire wall was joined together up to its half in height. Why? The people had a mind to work. In verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried the burdens loading themselves so that one hand worked at construction and the other hand held a weapon. You get that imagery? <laughs> one hand had a trowel and they're laying stone. The other hand had a sword and they're fighting off the enemy. Can I tell you the secret to perseverance is you got to get up every day and say, I'm gonna do what I need to do, and I'm gonna fight the good fight. Paul said at the end of his day, I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. He said, I fulfilled God's purpose for my life. And I'm gonna tell you, life is a fight. It, the, the enemy is gonna come at you. I'm telling you, the target is on your back. So every day when you get up, you have to fight the good fight. I'm gonna lay the stone and I'm gonna keep the sword. I'm gonna keep a trowel in my hand and keep doing what God's called me to do, and then I'm gonna be ready to fight off the enemy. There's nowhere in the Bible, there's a Bible promise that you won't face opposition. Nowhere. You get saved, you come to Jesus, you discover your purpose, and you start moving in that direction. That doesn't mean you're gonna be, you know, 
everything's always going to go your way. You're going to face all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You're going to face the headwinds. It is going to get hard. It is going to get tough. There are going to be moments when you look for the exit ramp and you want to quit. And you, the temptation is sins of escapism where you just want to get out of your life for a little while. All that's there. But if you'll stay focused on your purpose and you just determine by the grace of God, I will not quit. God will not stop you and the devil cannot stop you when you have that kind of term, determination. You know how that ends? That story ends you look in chapter 6, verse 15, Nehemiah said, we built the wall. <laughs> we built the wall. We did what we set out to do. I read an article, they said when they were building the Panama Canal, they ran into so many cost overruns and they ran into so many challenges getting that canal finished. And I forget the name of the engineer, his name slips me now, but he was just getting hammered in the press. They were criticizing him. All of the major press outlets were saying, he's in over his head. He's bit off more than he can chew. You know, he's not adequate for the job. And they were just hammering him. And finally, someone asked him, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to your critics? He said, here's how I'm going to respond to my critics, with a canal. I'm going to build the canal. You know how you respond to your, your critics? Stay on purpose. Stay on point. Don't lose sight of who you are, of whose you are, and of what God has called you to do, because anything he calls you to do, he'll equip you to do it. Paul said, I can through Christ who gives me strength. Don't you quit. Rest, yeah, rest. You're going to get tired. You may get injured. You may need to come off the field for a little while. You may have to go into intensive care for a little while. We have people in our church right now who the last thing we need to do is try to get them out there serving again because they're in rehab. They've been hurt. And I've told you, you've heard me say this how many times, if you hadn't been hurt in church, you just didn't go long enough. Hang in there, baby. Somebody will run you down to the glory of God. You're going to get hurt in church. I can show you some scars and you can cry with each other about all that. Churches are imperfect organisms and organizations. They are. The only thing perfect about a church is the perfect Savior that we serve and a perfect Bible that we preach from. Beyond that, we try to do the best we can. We're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. And you're going to get hurt. But what we want to do is get you in rehab. We want to get you healthy again. Why? Because you're needed back out there on the field. If we're going to turn the season around and if we're going to move the ball down, the, you are valuable. You are important. You're needed in the game. So it's going to happen. So you have to have a mind that says, I won't quit. I won't quit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that always challenges us, has the power through the working of the Holy Spirit to change us. So Lord, I pray we'll take away something from the message that will make us more effective. I pray, Lord, that you will challenge our hearts to not give up, Help us to just stay in the fight. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. Thank you, Father, that you're on the throne. We've read the last book of the Bible, and we know you win. And when you win, we win. So, Father, I just pray that while we're in the battle against the devil every day, that we just 
won't quit. Finally, Lord, I pray for my friends who've never trusted you as Savior. I pray this might be that moment when right where they are, they humble their hearts and they pray a prayer like this and say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I trust everything I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin. And this is my prayer, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.